Hello, I'm Merrick Schneider. Welcome to this podcast of articles from the Wall Street Journal, a presentation of Ayers LA. You are listening to this recording, which is provided for the use of those who are blind or print impaired. Materials or items read on Ayers LA are the copyrighted property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. Today's first article is titled, Short Burst of Exercise Cuts Risk for Cancer, by Brianna Abbott. Then an article by Ann Terskin, Older Americans Invest Like 30-Year-Olds. Brian Gormley has an article, Augmented Reality Comes to Surgery. And then Jean Eaglesham wrote, Home Insurers Charge More, Cover Less, And we'll follow that up with an article by Mark Nadia. A simple fan can fix the hottest day. All these articles are from recent editions of the Wall Street Journal. And let's begin with today's first. Short burst of exercise cuts risks for cancers. To reduce your cancer risk, you don't need to make it all the way to the gym. You could start by bringing in the groceries. People who recorded just under four minutes of daily vigorous movement had a roughly 17% reduced cancer risk compared with people who didn't log any high-intensity movement, a study published in the journal JAMA Oncology concluded. The link was stronger for cancers in which exercise has previously been connected to lower risks, including breast, colon, endometrial, and bladder cancer. The study followed more than 22,000 people who reported that they didn't exercise but logged minute-long bursts of activity, such as walking uphill or carrying shopping bags. It adds to evidence tying physical activity to better health, even when the movement is modest. Short bursts of vigorous activity are clearly important for cancer risk at the population level, Elizabeth Salerno, a biobehavioral scientist at the Siteman Cancer Center at Washington University in St. Louis, who wasn't involved in the research. It's never too late to get moving in small ways, whether that be parking farther away at the store or taking the stairs. Study participants who moved vigorously during the day might have been at lower risk for cancer to begin with, said William McCarthy, adjunct professor of health policy and management at the UCLA Fielding School of Public Health, who wasn't involved in the study. I would not assume that adults adverse to structured physical activity should be satisfied with running up the stairs several times a day as an effective cancer prevention alternative, he said. Evidence has been linked to lower risk of several cancers, and health groups recommend adults get at least 150 minutes of moderate exercise or 75 minutes of vigorous exercise each week to see a benefit. Researchers used activity data from UK Biobank, a database of health information from people in the UK, including data from wearable fitness trackers. The average age of the 22,000 non-exercises in the study was... 62. And now, older Americans invest like 30-year-olds. Older Americans keep rolling the dice in the stock market, ignoring the conventional wisdom to protect their nest eggs by shifting more of their investments to bonds.
Nearly half of Vanguard 401k investors actively managing their money and over age 55 held more than 70% of their portfolios in stocks. In 2011, 38% did so. At Fidelity Investments, nearly 4 in 10 investors ages 65 to 69 hold about two-thirds or more of their portfolios in stocks. And it isn't just baby boomers. In taxable brokerage accounts at Vanguard, one-fifth of investors 85 or older have nearly all their money in stocks, up from 16% in 2012. The same is true of almost a quarter of those ages 75 to 84. Having significant exposure to stocks later in life can be risky, advisors and economists said. If only because if the market were to tumble, retirees needing cash might have no choice but to sell their shares at bargain prices. Many changes over the past half century have contributed to older Americans' reliance on stocks, including the 1978 tax law change that ushered in the 401k and several decades where stocks have bested bonds. During financial or economic crisis, including in 1987, 2001, 2008, and 2020, the Federal Reserve or Congress often stepped in to support the economy. The spirit of the times is, don't worry about the markets crashing. They will come back up and set new highs, said Robert Schiller, a Nobel Prize winning economist at Yale University. Toby Bloom, 63 years old, tried investing 60% of his retirement savings in stocks and 40% in bonds. But five years ago, the Albuquerque, New Mexico resident realized his returns weren't high enough to achieve his goal of retiring by 2026 with at least $40,000. So he moved 80% of his money into dividend-paying and other stocks in his IRA, which now holds $21,000. I'm not going to make any money for retirement by being overly stodgy and conservative, said Bloom, an insurance agent. Stan Galperin, 80, started trading stocks a few years after retiring from a career running video rental and grocery stores in southern New Jersey. 2013, he moved to the Villages, a sprawling retirement community in Florida, and co-founded an investment club. He sold the bonds that had made up 40% of his portfolio and began trading stocks. Interest rates were so low at the time it didn't pay to hold bonds, said Galperin. But now, with rates higher, he has moved more of his portfolio into money market accounts and does continue to trade stocks. Many older investors remain bullish on stocks for one simple reason, returns. Since 1982, the S&P 500 has returned 10.1% a year on average. That is significantly more than the index's long-term average annual return of 7.4% a year since 1928, according to Dow Jones market data. Wayne Wincris, 72, a Pittsburgh, Wisconsin retiree with 98% of his portfolio in stocks, said he is staying in stocks because he sees no good alternatives. I don't like cash and I don't like bonds, he said. 
Both are losers' games when it comes to inflation. Winquist invests 70% of his $3 million portfolio in stocks that pay dividends. He also trades options, pocketing payments for giving others the right to buy his shares for a set price if the stock rises above that level. He and his wife mainly live on Social Security benefits. Last year, he said they used some of the $150,000 they earned in dividends to buy more stock. A church elder who writes an investing blog, he also used a large chunk of that money for charitable giving. The former information technology executive began investing in his employer's 401k in the early 1980s. In 1995, he hired a broker to manage a $20,000 windfall from stock options. By 2001, Winkist had lost $7,500 of that money after two of the broker's picks went out of business. I became skeptical of the experts, he said. In 2001, Winquist fired his broker and began buying shares in technology companies. He said years of investing have taught him to screen out market sell-offs. The long-term slope of the market is upward, he said. As the beneficiaries of high stock market returns, baby boomers tend to report a greater willingness to take financial risks than those who lived through the Great Depression. According to research by Eureke Malmendier, a professor of economics and finance at the University of California, Berkeley, and Stefan Nagel, a professor of finance at the University of Chicago. It's what we had lived through personally that emotionally wires our brains for risk-taking, Malmendier said. In contrast to younger Americans, boomers are also more likely to take a do-it-your-own self-approach to managing their money. Among baby boomers with 401k accounts at Fidelity Investments, 53% picked their own investments, compared with 42% in Generation X and 25% of Millennials. For three decades, Marty Modraski, 59, of Toledo, Ohio, has picked his own investments. The software consultant made his first stock purchase in college, when he spent $550 to buy beaten-down shares of Bank of America during the 1987 stock market crash. Modrowski said he made a costly mistake in 2008 when he sold some of his stocks as the market plummeted, leaving fewer shares in his portfolio when a recovery began in 2009. What does it even mean to take risk off the table as you age, he said, adding that due to inflation, Bonds and cash are risky, too. Nothing is totally safe. Modrowski plans to work full-time for at least five more years. He currently has nearly 80% of his portfolio in stocks. In my lifetime, there have been so many crises, from the Mexican debt crisis to the failures of long-term capital management and Lehman Brothers. It always seems that everything turns out all right, he said. And now Brian Gourmet's Augmented Reality Comes to Surgery. Augmented Reality is entering the operating room. Venture firm Thrive Capital, founded by Joshua Kushner, has led a $20 million first or Series A round of venture funding in Metavis, 
a New York-based startup whose software allows medical images, such as those from magnetic resonance imaging and CT scans, to be superimposed on the patient. Surgeons can view the three-dimensional image through any commercial available AR headset, such as Microsoft's HoloLens 2. Metavis system essentially provides x-ray vision into the patient's anatomy, said co-founder Osama Chowdhury, a neurosurgeon at NYU Langone Health. The Food and Drug Administration cleared Metavis system for use in planning surgeries in 2019. The company is now pursuing FDA clearance to use the system during surgeries, including procedures in neurosurgery, orthopedic, and plastic surgery. AR, which overlays holographic images onto physical reality, isn't new, but its use in surgery is just getting started. Kareem Zaki, a Thrive General Partner, noted that software advances that deliver the precision needed for surgery are relatively new, and securing regulatory clearances and research publications to support the technology takes time, he added. Thrive was drawn to the promise of using AR to improve safety and outcomes for patients and helping surgeons provide more life-saving care, he added. In the same way software has transformed so many industries, we'd like to see software transform healthcare as well, Zaki said. Chowdhury and Christopher Morley, a radiologist and president of Medivis, founded the company back in 2016. Imaging is vital to surgery, but the two-dimensional view surgeons usually have forces them to construct a three-dimensional view in their mind, Chowdhury said. Metavis AR technology allows them to map a three-dimensional medical image directly onto the patient for surgical planning and navigation, helping surgeons perform complex procedures, the company says. This technology inherently reduces uncertainty, Morley said. Dr. Stephen Monteith, director of cerebrovascular neurosurgery at Providence Swedish Neuroscience Institute in Seattle, said Metavis system helps surgeons develop an operating plan and more clearly see the distance between brain tissue and blood vessels, for instance. His institute has used the technology to plan brain tumor removals, among other procedures. We have found that using the system, we can get a better understanding of a patient's individual anatomy and pathology, Monteith said. Metavis isn't the only startup applying AR to surgery. Augmetics, based in Arlington Heights, Illinois, secured FDA clearance in 2019 for a navigation system used in spinal surgery. Founded in 2014, Augmetics has developed its own headset used to visualize AR images. For example, surgeons can use the system to aid the placement of screws used in procedures such as spinal fusions. Augmetics technology has been used on nearly 4,000 patients, said Chief Executive Kevin Hikes. Augmetics, which has raised about $66 million total in venture capital, recently closed a Series D financing and plans to disclose the details of the new round at the end of the month, he said. 
As for Metavis, the company said it plans to use its new funding to scale its engineering, obtain more regulatory clearances, and commercialize globally in specialties including neurosurgery, orthopedic surgery, interventional radiology, and reconstructive surgery. Gene Inglesham's article, Home Insurers Charge More, Cover Less. Double-digit premium increases, higher deductibles, new coverage limits, drones to check the state of roofs and yards. Home insurers are insuring less and charging more as they try to claw their way back to profitability after losing money in five of the past six years, analysts and insurance agents say. We're seeing moves to put more of the risk back onto the homeowner, tougher underwriting restrictions and big rate increases, said Lauren Mayue, a managing director at independent agency Goosehead Insurance. The higher cost, lower coverage trend extends well beyond Florida, California, and other states prone to hurricanes, floods, or wildfires. Minuti added, I don't think anywhere is safe from this now, she said. Losses for home insurance companies continued to pile up in the first six months of this year. Storms, natural disasters, inflation, and supply chain snafus have sent claims spiraling leaving many insurers still in the red despite sharp increases to premiums. The results are awful and not sustainable, said Paul Newsom, an analyst at Piper Sandler. Since the start of the last year, double-digit rate increases have been approved in 31 states, according to an analysis by S&P Global Market Intelligence for the Wall Street Journal. Arizona, Texas, North Carolina, Oregon, Illinois, and Utah had the biggest total of approved increases, ranging from 20% to 30%. In states such as California, some insurers are halting sales of new policies. Travelers, a big home insurer, said that a 19% increase in premiums was just one prog of its profit improvement effort. Beyond that, we're managing terms and conditions, Michael Klein, head of Travelers Personal Insurance, said on a call with investors. Think deductibilities. Think roof age eligibility. Think coverage levels on roof replacement. Tim Sawaki, an S&P analyst, said companies are tightening the screws around the edges on coverage to limit their expenses. Some insurers, he said, are limiting coverage for older roofs to their cash value rather than their replacement cost. Many insurers have cut coverage of wind and hail damage by increasing the deductible, or the first part of the claim that the policyholder has to pay, from 1% to 2% or more, Gooseheads Minuti said. Companies are also pulling back from some areas vulnerable to disasters. Many big insurers have exited from Florida and Louisiana, both of which have suffered tens of billions of dollars in losses from hurricanes in recent years. In wildfire-prone California, where State Farm and Allstate have stopped writing new home policies, the industry says regulatory curbs on pricing mean they cannot charge enough to cover their costs. 
California insurance regulator says insurers have failed to ask for adequate rate increases. In Florida, alongside coverage restrictions and higher premiums, there is a reluctance from insurers to write policies for older homes or homes that don't have strong wind mitigation, according to Miami-based Fred Zutel of brokerage Lockton. Now, he added, we're seeing similar, although not quite as punitive, restrictions from insurers in other low-lying coastal areas, such as Louisiana, Texas, and the Carolinas. Higher premiums hit consumers already burdened with higher interest rates and inflation. There is little chance the home insurance pain will ease in the short term for either companies or policyholders, industry insiders and analysts say. We're still seeing the industry having an underwriting loss this year continuing out to 2025, said Dale Porfilio, chief insurance officer at industry body, the Insurance Information Institute. The Institute expects that the cycle of continuing to take rates upward is going to continue for the next two years, he said. One positive development is a slowdown in the increase in repair and replacement costs that help push up the dollar value of claims. Total reconstruction costs, including labor and materials, are up 1.6% so far this year, compared with rises of more than 7% in each of the past three calendar years, according to insurance analytics firm Versic. Weather damage appears to be getting worse, though. Companies are reporting significant home insurance losses from a series of recent severe storms across the Midwest. Progressive, for example, said categoric losses last month ate up 92% of home insurance premiums earned. The company blamed severe weather throughout the United States. Insure damage in the United States from severe storms, wildfires, floods, and other natural disasters has topped $90 billion in each of the past three years, according to insurance broker Aon. That is markedly higher than the inflation-adjusted average for any of the previous four decades, including $54 billion for the 2010s and $40 billion for the 2000s, Aon data show. Insurers expect catastrophic losses to remain elevated for all the climate risk reasons we and scientists and everybody else has talked about the Insurance Information Institute's portfolio said. Global warming is increasing the frequency of some type of natural disasters, while population shifts into vulnerable areas are adding to the underlying cost, scientists and brokers say. This summer's heat wave has warmed the water around the Gulf Coast, heightening the risk of hurricanes as well as adding to the fuel for potential California wildfires. According to Rod Fox, executive chairman of reinsurance broker Howden Tiger, the escalating cost of catastrophes is reflected in a steep increase in premiums for the reinsurance coverage that home insurance companies buy to pass on some of their risk. Depending on the state regulator, those higher premiums can feed directly through to the price charged to homeowners, Fox said. His firm's data show reinsurance premiums were up average 33% for June 1 renewals, 
which includes many Florida carriers, and 50% renewals at the start of this year. The question of whether reinsurance prices will keep rising, piling more pressure on home insurance premiums, depends a lot on what happens in the rest of the year, according to Fox. If we have another major hurricane, or some medium-sized hurricanes, or a spate of wildfires, that reinsurance price will go up again. And now let's do Mark Nadia's A Simple Fan Can Fix the Hottest Day. The summer weather here in Austin, Texas is remarkably consistent, and on weather apps it is usually presented as a frightening shade of red. The current outlook is a high of 101 to 104 degrees for the foreseeable future. I don't prefer to like it this hot, but like tens of millions of Americans who choose to live in a place with an unreasonable climate, I make do. My Michigan relatives express horror that I live in a place that bears some resemblance to an oven for part of each year, but I reply that I spend less time being hot here than I did when I lived in Michigan or New York. The answer is simple. Here we have good air conditioning. Everywhere. In Michigan, my grandmother lived in an old brick house that lacked air conditioning. She would put box fans at the front and back doors to draw air through the main corridor and cool the house. I don't remember it working. Some of my books bear sweat stains from summer days reading in my uncooled college apartment and my New York apartment small window unit cooled unevenly, to say the least. Waiting underground for a train in Manhattan in the summer is the closest I've come to being baked alive. But in Texas, you hear just as many complaints about being too cold inside than it being too hot outside. The recent scuttlebutt about the hottest day ever in our planet's history, which was thoroughly debunked, in other pages of the Wall Street Journal, exemplified a lot of the most wrong-headed conventions of weather reporting meant to scare us up support for climate policies. This shade of yellow journalism ignores the fact that there are more deaths from excessive cold than from excessive heat each year, and it is often written as if everyone lives outside, has little shade, and walks around in the middle of the day. If some enterprising meteorologist could develop a way to gauge the average temperature experienced by humans in a place, then we could have a more accurate picture of the climate and whether innovations are keeping up with any measurable climate change. Such a measure would account for the fact that people who live in hot climates exercise outside in the morning or at sunset. They spend more time at the pool. Parents buy battery-powered misting fans for strollers. They let the car AC run for a while before they get in and remember to bring water wherever they go. The fixes for heat aren't complex, or at least they don't need to be as complex as having various government agencies quixotically redesign the U.S. economy. Amazon will drop a fan at your front door in a day or two at most. Civilization really got rolling at Mesopotamia where summer temperatures regularly get into the 110s. So humans have been dealing with high temperatures long enough to know how to adapt. Even if the world is heating up inexorably, we have technology to mediate its effects, 
and the media should stop pretending we don't. That brings us to the end of today's articles. I'm Merrick Schneider, and I'll be back soon with more articles. Thank you for listening.